documentaries. History. Insights. Interviews. Chef's Deep Dive. And welcome to Chef's Deep Dive. And this week we've got our guest. He came back, walked through the door and didn't want to go out. It's Simon Goff. He's here. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Yeah. Oh, baby, how I Right. Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. One thing I did think was, I need to call you Shep now, don't I? Because um, it's Shep's Deep Dive, it's not Cliff's Deep Dive. Oh, you can call me Cliff um, if you want, it doesn't matter. The only thing is, and some of you, some of the listeners might not get this reference, especially if you're, in, if, if you're in America or somewhere like that, but Shep, to people of our age, tends to make people think of a certain dog, you know, damn boy. And, and in fairness, we've had to say that to Cliff on a number of occasions. <laughs> Don't so, Shep. Don't Shep. <laughs> think of a particular, a particular event in a Yates' Wine Lodge many years ago, which, um, you know, we, we try not to talk, talk oh, about too much. Oh, yeah. We got, I got asked to, be, asked to get off the table. Yeah. And pull me pants up. Absolutely. I put your tries back on, mate. So <laughs> <do>, right? <laughs> I asked Simon to come on this podcast this time, and I asked him because it's one of my favourite films. And... I, knowing Simon enjoyed this film as well, we thought we'd do it together. With Nail and I. I'm a trained actor reduced to the states of a bum. Hmm. The carrot has mystery. Flowers are essentially tarts. Prostitutes for the bees. If I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumour was a birthday present. A coward you are, Whitnall! An expert on bulls you are not! What I would say is this was definitely a film I saw when I was still at school and... This was one of those films that people talked about in hushed tones as it's amazing. It's like, oh, you've got to watch it. It's amazing. You know, that kind of teenage enthusiasm sort of vibe of when you when you pick through the pick through the elements, it's got some brilliant swearing. It's got some funny slapsticky kind of mental comedy. It's got um some superb one-liners, some of the best one-liners in the from that decade, really. Yeah, it's fully um, quotable. It? It's pretty... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 one of them films where, you know, you're transitioning from, you know, sort of kids' TV and and that world to like, oh wow, grown-ups and like grown-up stuff and proper like head melter of a film in some ways. So yeah, I would have been I would have been probably doing my A levels or something like that and. Um, Somebody would have said, "Oh, you've got to watch this, mate. It's amazing." And then it would have been um, either a video or, yeah, yeah. I was blown away, blown I, away. I think the um, first time I saw this, I would have been in college. I didn't go to university. I went to just went to college for a year. I remember hiring it out because there was this video store around the corner from my mum and dad's, and my brother and I used to get five videos, five VHSs for five quid for five days. Boom, boom, boom. So uh, this, this was one of them which we picked up. Prices, that's mate. It's brilliant, isn't it? So he just used to yeah. sit, sitting, sitting. I was talking to Ken about this the other day. He used to go home with all these videos for the weekend, nip over the road to uh, my mate Paul, have a spliff, go back, mash stuff our heads, and watch videos. 
drink drink my dad's lager from the fridge if you didn't know still have frumpets for the trauma (laughs) so for tenner you'd get mashed watching these films i remember watching it and i was like wow this is brilliant and then i watched it again i must have watched it about 20 times easy easy and each time i watch it i see different parts which resonate with my time so i remember watching it when i first moved down to london so I had, a, I had a, a VHS recorder in, in uh, London and a crappy old black and white TV, what this room had in um, Streatham Hill. And I ended up just sticking this film on with Neil and I, I was just laughing my socks off. And it felt more then important to me because of this crappy little bedsit room I was living in, in Streatham yeah. Hill, in a black and white TV. And I was like, wow, they've got it worse than me, so I'm happy. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was the thing, wasn't it? I mean, um, the, the the sort of setting of it is squalid. And, um, you know, there must have been generations of students and, you know, people that sort of age just um, sort of, yeah, resonating with that, that sense of, <laughs> like, who's going to do the washing up? Not me. I'm not doing it. I did it, I did it last month, you know. And, um, yeah, like... It's funny as well because I, I I remember um, when I was because I, I I did go to university. You met characters there that sort of this film sort of like puts you in mind of. Like um, I, I met this guy and he lived with these absolute wreckheads and one of them in particular and he's offering me like mushrooms and he's on about <laughs> doing acid and proper like man of the world. You know when you're eight, you're eighteen right you don't know shit. And yeah, yeah. miles away from home, you start to realise what the fuck's out there. And then you meet a character like this that's basically just done every fucking drug there is, right? <laughs> and and you're like, oh my God. And then obviously I was like, this like this guy's like with now, you know? <laughs> um, you know, that there's that sense of like people that push the boundaries for you. Do you know what I mean? So Yeah, yeah, most most yeah. definitely. You know, I mean people just pop up throughout your life and yeah. you can see the same characters time and time again especially the the drug dealer danny <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they pop up everywhere <laughs> fucking in every every place and then you know some of the stuff danny's talking about in the film uh, even though it's a comedy you sort of like that was people had realized by the end of the 60s like fucking hell we can actually we deserve a say in this we we yeah. we should have our opportunity to you know to, to have our say and um it's quite interesting because because obviously everybody everybody remembers the Cambo carrot and the what's he what's he called the um what's he called the one at the beginning as well oh the embalmer the embalmer the barber that's it yeah it looks to me like uh, Bruce Robinson who obviously, who obviously lived through all that he was writing from his own experiences wasn't it it's essentially a a kind of um, compilation of greatest hits from his autobiography in some respects apparently the film it it sort of I think I, I read a quote which was something along the lines of about two or three years of my life got condensed into two weeks for the purposes of yeah. the plot of the film. He was a, a young man at the time, you know, he was sort of like 2021, 20, started acting well, at that time of your life as an actor, you know. I mean, nowadays, you're probably trying to get on EastEnders or something at that age. Yeah. yeah. Um, but back then, it would have been much more about theatre and then getting into films if you were lucky yeah and um you know evidently he was doing some quite interesting stuff you know we might touch on this later in terms of like uncle monty and where that character came from oh yeah well franco zavelli yeah yeah, you know bruce robinson was was a was a a a bit of a hot shot it seems and um yeah he was living in a living in a house in in london and having a ball i would imagine and and um channeling all that when he came to write this uh, when he came to write this film definitely um, it, it was it was mainly based around his experiences and it resonates with people year after year even though it's set in 1969 it could easily be uh, yesterday if you're a student or yesterday if you're living in a shitty accommodation like I did in Valley Road and Stretton Mill there we are no. <laughs> right, I, I lived um, I lived in Stretton for a bit um not Stratham Hill, that was the Brixton and when it, I lived at the other end of Croydon and Stratham Common. But um, yeah, it, exactly. And there would have been th- so many people through the years who've bits of that film have just chimed in with them, whether it's been the the kind of, um, what's the word, spontaneous decision to disappear for the weekend or the 
I'm going to try this. I'm going to, I mean, you know, um, the, some of it, like the, the bit at the beginning when, um, have you got soup? Where did you get soup? It's coffee. And he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's drinking coffee with a spoon out of a bowl because they don't want to do the washing up, you know, um, we've all, you know what? Everybody will have, everybody will have something around that. Exactly. The only, the only, th- only thing I saw, which I didn't realise, and uh, and you get into the casting, was um, apparently, yeah, Paul McGann got rejected initially because he went in and auditioned as himself, i.e. a scouser, because, you know, he's he's one of a family of, like, four or five brothers, and they were all yeah. actors. He, he, he was who Bruce Robinson wanted, but he was like, well, he's not a scouser. I can't have a scouser in it. And then um, he had to disappear, come back, with a with an accent, and then um, I, I I was listening to his voice through it, and he's putting on an accent, and there are times yeah. when he goes kind of London, and then there are other times when he's not, and and um, you can't imagine the character as a as a northerner though fundamentally. In fairness to the part and the role, you don't want you don't want to be focusing on him. No, no. Um, he's there to be a foil to Wivnell, isn't he? So yes, yeah. you know, it's almost like the blander the better. If he had been a he had been too distinctive, it almost would have made the film dynamic a bit different, probably. But oh, did you know as well about cast? Uh, Ken- Kenneth Branner was one who auditioned as well for the Widnail right. World. And then um, there's a story about I don't know if you read it about Richard E. Grant turning up, and Bruce Robinson said he's too fat. It, it was, oh, it was, yeah, it was a bit of that. a fatty. And then I saw an interview with them both, and Richard's like. I wasn't fat. I've always been fit. He goes, no, no, you was too fat. You was a bit chubby. <laughs> it, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I was, I was sitting there thinking, like, really? Um, but yeah, I mean, the guy's got to be an absolute rake for the for the the character to make sense. Yeah, know, yeah, some, yeah. A well-fed person doesn't consider drinking lighter fluid at the end of the day. Um, no. So, you know, so you can see where Bruce was coming from, but um, I think. You know they are they're they're on trial for their physicality, aren't they? Actors, you sort of, you know, um, there are moments in the film where you get close-ups where you look at them and you're like, there's a there's a very sort of um, chiselled quality to Richard E. Grant, you know, in terms of his face, you know, cheekbones, and he's got this kind of quite haughty, kind of aristocratic look about him somehow. Yeah, quite gaunt um, as well. well. What also made me smile was actually his hair is really eighties if you look at it. Yeah. Um, you know, big bouffant sort of vibe. So anyway. <laughs> Yeah, let's have a quick film then. So it it's one of the one of the best openings because it's got such a brilliant track to this film, yeah. hasn't it? The soundtrack is phenomenal. So Pomegranate's um, what looks like it's having it's having a spliff is is hitting it pretty hard, and then the music, the white a shade of pale, which is just yeah, which is more or less like a sap, more of a heavy sax version of it, wasn't it? Yeah, like. I was thinking about this because I, 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 like I said, I watched the film for the first time in ages, and it's it still I'd forgotten that I'd forgotten the opening. And every time I watch the bloody film, the the, the cool, just how cool that track is, and and the kind of quality it gives you immediately of fuck, these guys are these guys are like seriously cool. And you know, if you'd have just done the normal Proko Haram version, you know, yeah. the hit single UK number one. You know, incredible. That's that's effectively like you play that and you're waiting for Tony Blackbird to go. Brokel are up there with the uh, what is shade of pale? Uh, yeah, and it's sort of like you, 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 it's a pop song, right? And and the vibe would have been totally different. But you play that version. It's actually by a um, factoid here. It's actually by a, a jazz player called King Curtis, um, and the recording is actually from 1971. So it. it but it's the guy the guy played with Aretha Franklin and uh, various other folk and and, and was a very cool um, was a very cool guy and that version I just think that's jazz and it's like achingly cool and instantly you're like these guys are cooler than me Uh, the guy looks a bit stressed he's he's having a he's having a crafty J and He's got the most coolest shit music I've ever heard in my life playing. I want to be this man. What I don't, you know, I want to know what I, know, I want to know what's going on here. Um, it's 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 a brilliant opening, and then yeah, like I say, the soundtrack just is just in that in that zone of like late sixties, absolutely pinpoint, 
obviously Hendrix a couple of times. Yeah, phenomenal. Phenomenal, uh, phenomenal opening. And then he goes, he, he goes to, he's doing like a, what looks like a daily routine for him. So he's at the, he's at the J, he's gone to a cafe, he's read the newspaper, because there's always free newspapers in cafes, weren't there? I don't know if they still have it now. Like a proper greasy spoon one. You don't even yeah, see yeah. greasy spoon cafes anymore, do you? And then he's just watching the people around him and you can see like he's, he just wants to get away. He's had enough. And this, what you find out later is this stress with, no work coming in with his acting. Yeah, exactly. So he, he decides, you know what, I want to do something about it. And this is the the um, the narration of the film as well, which really adds to and makes the film complete because he's like reading it from his own diaries, isn't he? He's like he's like his storytelling himself, which you wouldn't get. Of which, again, um, handmade films didn't want them to add that in. He wanted him to to leave out the narration. Well, if, without that, you need to know what's going on in the guy's head. And unless you want him to just talk to nobody, <laughs> I think it works perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I didn't even... I didn't even contemplate what the film would be like without the narration. You just... It just... It, 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 it drops in at moments where it, it really does move the story along and it and it adds, it adds a great touch. It's brilliantly done. But I mean... Obviously, you go from that scene where he's like, you're like, oh, this guy's a cool kid. Actually, like, you know, imagine that noise of the needle coming off the record, you know, yeah. and then uh, <laughs> it's like they're arguing about who's going to wash up. Yeah, uh, and he's losing and, the plot, and he has this brilliant line. He goes, my heart's beating like a foot clock. I love that. <laughs> like a foot clock. Because he's, but, he's um, sort of pulling a white tape. He's, he's having a little panic attack into... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but the but the contrast of like cool kid, it's amazing, you know, jazz, you know, doobies, and then you're reading the news of the world, you're drinking coffee out of a well, you're drinking coffee with a spoon. The kitchen of rooms is an absolute tip. It's like you said, you've got one point, you got super cool where you think I won't mind being these guys. And on the other side, the start realization when it comes out of of his. Uh, being stoned, that they're poor, they're broke. It, it looks like the flat exactly. stinking, exactly. or stuff is growing out of the kitchen sink. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But that and, happens. And, I've been to loads of student places where I've stayed at people's houses, and they, they, you're like, "Does nobody clean up?" So, uh, I could tell you some stories, Dave. But um, there was one. Um, <laughs> I was in a shared house in my second year, and um, the yeah, the water got cut off, and it. Um, we had a whole weekend with no water, and somebody, not naming any names, had picked a pretty bad time to have a massive dump. <laughs> um, it. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Not 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 got fond memories of that weekend. If I'm really honest. But um. Was you only sharing for yeah, a few like, months after that? But but. But in terms of setting the, in terms of setting up the film, you know, you've got, you've got this, like this force of nature with Nail. He's, he drops some killer lines in that first five ten minutes. Um, he looks incredible. He drinks like a few, you know, and throws up on the floor. Um, and obviously, then you get the scene with Danny, and you realise that these guys are like kind of wrongins as well. But you know, relate, but. You could go out for a drink with them, you know what I mean? They are, they're not wrong as in bad wrong. They're just like well, your normal well, geezers, aren't the reason, they? The reason I put it like that is because, again, if I think back to my time like, and some of these characters I was running into, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of danger there. And as a viewer, as somebody that's just kind of watching this, you go from, you know, you, you're taking on a bit of a journey in terms of getting the measure of these people, and you you realise early that these guys are, are are playing are playing quite hard. And I think it's just that sense of like um, it's not nihilism, but it's almost like just a little like devil may care. You know, it's just yeah, yeah. fuck it, let's do it. And and some of the shit they're pulling, you know, it, it a, a timid little suburban little kid like me is going to look at that and go. Ooh, a bit rich for my blood, and um, 
that's part of, but that, but, but by creating the characters in that way and setting them up like that, you know, you, you're with them because of the way they pick apart the paper and you, you're like, this guy's funny. <laughs> you know, like when he starts imagining how Jeff Wade would sort of like kick his head in and, and um, <laughs> like, you've never met, you've never met Jeff Wade. You don't, you, you know nothing about him. I can't help thinking of Jeff Capes myself, but yeah, um, yeah. I bet they were thinking of him. These guys are dangerous, but they're cool. So we want to see what happens to him. And obviously, uh, yeah, Danny Danny rocks up. Um, oh, he's one of the... He's superb. He's he's, he's iconic to the yeah. film. So much so that they used him in Wayne's World 2, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably defined his career as well. The actor's called Ralph Brown, I think. And, yeah, um, that's right. He crops up all over the place. He's in... He's one of the guys flying around with Anakin Skywalker in the first... Uh, in Phantom Menace. Oh, yeah. Ralph Brown's, Ralph Brown's one of the pilots in, in the bit when they're trying to blow up the whatever version of the Death Star it is in that one. Um, I'll get dropped from all these sci-fi bloody podcasts if I keep talking like that. I know it's not the Death Star. <laughs> right. I know it's the fucking drone, fucking clone, clone drone. We just, we just call it the G-Star. They're all a pile of shite after <laughs> the first three anyway. Yeah, exactly. Cliff, yeah, Chef Steve Diver said that if they can't admit that the cycle prequels, cyclequels are all the same, it doesn't matter. There's no originality after the first three. There we are. We said um, that. Right. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so career defining role for Ralph Brown. I'm sure he, sure he never, had to, um, never had to audition for anything for a while after that. But um, yeah, amazing bit, isn't it? And uh, the embalmer. You get a sense of what an idiot Wivnail is at that stage because of his bravado of going, I, I can take anything you've got, you know. And I, I, again, everybody knows that guy that goes, fuck it, I'll drink it, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I'll do I, it. I, I'll, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll try it. There's always some um, dick, but there's always someone there like. Like, there's a brilliant line from Danny when he when the Wivnell is giving him shit, and you think, why is he giving him shit? I thought he was his knee, and he, Danny turns around and he just pulls down his specs, and you think, fuck, that guy's messed up. He's he, what is he on? And he goes, if I medicine you, you'll think a brain tumor was a birthday present. <laughs> 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 and you just look at him, think he knows what he's talking about. Don't do it, Wivnell. <laughs> yeah, life's not. Life's not necessarily um, proving that fulfilling for the boys, is it? So they decide that they're going to have a break and they decide that they want to go and get out of London. Yeah. At which point, with Nail, pipes up that his uncle's got a place in the Lake District and we get to meet the other major character of the film, don't we? Which is which is great. Monty. Like the four yeah. main characters in this film, Danny, you got the Paul McGowan, Richard O'Brien... Richard Griffiths, Ralph Brown, the, the four main ones which, which carry on the narrative and the story of the film. And Richard Richard Griffiths, when he when he played this role, he looks in his sixties, but he was only like forty two when he did this role. He, he um he didn't age well. Did much <laughs> loved actor as well. Um, he 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 was always in, in my memory of him very benevolent. Most of his characters were very gentle and. He, he was one of these people that, if you saw him rock up, you were like, "Oh, good guy, nice guy." Yeah. So slight, slightly, slightly interesting casting, but fundamentally, I mean, the, the bit at his house, I find just supremely amusing the way he goes around. I mean, obviously, the, the probably the bit I remembered the most in the whole film from the first few times I watched it when I was younger was was the <laughs> the, the, the the bit with the cat. <laughs> You know, um, I can't remember the bloody line now, but you know, the, basically, it's like it, 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 it insists on ruining, ruining everything, and you know, he's, he's, you just get this immediate sense of like the, the, the guy who talks to his cat on the level all the of, time. You poisonous, you poisonous animal, you know, and, and he calls it a little um, slut, doesn't he? As well, you yes. <laughs> little slut, you ruin everything. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's such a brilliant. It's such a brilliant comic creation that that character at that stage and 
uh, we talked about it with Mel Brooks and the yeah. last one about about that fondness for for these very extreme personalities and you know setting the character up at that point as as that kind of persona, but obviously like you say completely bonkers as well. And again, and that's when you start to realise exactly where Wivnell's come from, and and you start to see Marwood as like the slight fish out of water there. Yeah. Um, and obviously he's completely bewildered by the entire thing, and we find out why later. But. <laughs> But yeah. well, it, it, like, like you said, he is bewildered because, like, you got with now, just takes it in his stride. He just thinks it's the most normal thing to, for for this nutter uncle of his to carry on with his ways, and he's and he's just knocking back sherry after sherry with now. Yeah. And then Marwood's just sitting there, like transfixed. All he's thinking of is, how the hell do we get out of here? <laughs> That's it. Right. Although, funny enough, I, w- I would have loved it. I would have just sat there listening to the guy. I thought it would be yeah, crazy. You're, you're, you're a fairly secure individual, though, Cliff. Uh, not everybody's um, <laughs> not everybody's got your sense of. Uh, I, yeah, I tell I tell, I tell you a quick a quick story. When I first moved to Streatham Hill, I went down to a pint on the high street, and I thought, right, I want a pint. I'm not staying in. I'm not being a dickhead on my own, right? So I'll go. Um, so I went into this pub, one of the first ones I found. And it was all, all glass, big glass windows. They looked really nice. So I went in, ordered a pint, and sat down. And then this old man, he must have been in his 70s, just sat, sits right opposite me. And he goes, oh, hello. That's away from from Manchester. He goes, oh, I've been to Manchester. I was working in the docks in Manchester. I said, oh, right. But I thought, Jesus, how old is this guy? Right, no word of a lie. He starts going on about building a submarine out of jam jars. Have I told you this story? <laughs> Have I told you? No. <laughs> right. So he's telling me this story about building his jam jars of, of, of this boat, right? And I, I'm drinking my pint as fast as I can, thinking he's a fucking nutter, right? This is what my dad warned me about. So I'm drinking this pint as fast as I can, but he must have been watching me. So he's going on and he says, oh, yeah, I, when I was in Salford, I used to start collecting uh, jam jars. Have you been around there? There's loads of jam jar factories. Just going on. I thought, I can't remember a jam jar factory. So maybe it's not there now anymore. I said, where, do you, where did you work when you came down London? He goes, I couldn't get a job working in any jam jar place down in London. Just going on about jam jars. It was crazy. I was like, it's like someone had dropped a pill in my drink. He gets up and goes, do you want another pint? And I thought, well, I might as well. So he gets... <laughs> <laughs> he, ain't, he ain't that mental then. He ain't that mental. So I asked him another pint, yeah. He finishes down, off. Dial down the jam jars a bit, bruv. Yeah. Like, <laughs> take the beer off your hands there. Yeah. So he gets me this pint, and he's sat in front of me, and he says, I've not launched it yet. I said, launched what? He goes to submarine. I went, I won't I I I I I do that. He'll probably die. And he's like, no, no, you can't say that. I was like, right, okay. I said, oh, my mate's just come in, you know, one of them, just to get out, because the conversation was getting really too weird. So I was already halfway through the pint. He says, look, if you want a drink, just give me a shot. I'll buy you one later. He goes, okay, okay, thank you very much. Give me a big handshake. Got to the bar. Three guys at the bar, and the barman just pissing himself. He goes, we wonder if you'd sit there. We were just hoping you'd sit there. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another lamb to the slaughter. Yeah, got a pint out of it. That's not too bad. I, um, my, the only time I ever went drinking on Streatham High Road was... Um, when there was a certain nightclub there called Caesars. Oh, yeah. I've been and, in um, there. I've been in there. I went on my own. Yeah. <laughs> Digressing again, but, um, yeah, mate. The, this was... Um, Appears in Only Cause Narcissus, anyone format. seen that? Yeah. It was a new format for me. It was, it was um, all-inclusive, so basically you paid, I think it was £18 to get yeah, in, but yeah. all your drinks, once you're in, were free. And, you'd, um, you'd have a kick-off or knock... Or, 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 kick-off or cop-off in there, it was known as. Mate, like... <laughs> You had to go through a full metal detector to get in. <laughs> first time, first time I, I'd experienced that particular joy. Like literally, like an airport, an airport style. Like they've got the fucking airport. You had to go through one of them. If it went, they uh, they politely asked you what, what you've got on you. And if you didn't have out, they give you something. <laughs> yeah. What you're not carrying? Fucking <laughs> should be you're in there, mate. <laughs> and, and literally, like yeah, like you say. Absolute fucking bedlam inside. Um, complete, completely. Yeah, can, can you imagine I, I, the type of crowd you get when you say it's all you can drink? Now, it, it was the shit and it was watered down 
pranks but, and all sorts. Uh, yeah, mate. I mean, but Jesus, I went there a few times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it was right up our street at the time, me and the lads. But um, yeah, anyway, um, right. So where are we? Oh, so, Monte. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I knew a nutter old bloke too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so it, um, yeah, so this stage, yes. So the boys, the boys jump in the jag, and again, this is this is interesting because it's kind of, oh, hang on, well they're not that they're not that broke then, um, and it, it it and it sort of dawns on you now when you watch it that exactly they're not they're not penniless and they're not from the streets. They're they're dilettantes basically. They're 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 just taking the piss. Um, although it's only got one headlight and it's. Yeah, my, my supposition, Cliff, is that vehicle is not going to pass its MOT. No, no. Um, which is which is which is kind of strange, right? Because that is a, a Jaguar Mark II. Yeah, it's the same type of car used in uh, Inspector Morse, like you guys, yeah, Inspector Morse. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, they came out in 1959. In my notes, right? <laughs> this is supposed to be based only 10 years later. But that car looks like 30 years old. It looks. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, you're, I would imagine you're supposed to think that they've racked the shit out of it, and they obviously probably have. Yeah, um, yeah. But I do like them cars. We have always wanted one of those. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's effortlessly cool. Again, the the um, they don't make them like that anymore. Never mind the fact that you probably could have kicked a hole in the floor and Fred Flintstone it up the road if um, if it broke down. Yeah, brilliant scene as well. Obviously, you hit you hit all along the watchtower. Jing 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 jing. You know. In fairness, um, if you should, I, I you don't think I don't think I've heard it ever better than what you just yeah, said. Then. If, if, <laughs> listeners, if you do Shazam that, it might not work. But um, <laughs> it might get one of Bebo's face. All along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix, anyway. So, wallop. It kicks Kill it in perfectly, though, don't it? Again. Yeah, and then brilliant. Obviously, the the whole the, the <laughs> windmill again, deviant. You know, screaming at the schoolgirls as they drive by. Scrubbers! Yeah, scrubbers! And um, and then obviously it, it turns into torrential rain and. I, I love know, I love how it's like typical English weather when you when you want to go for a weekend away. I mean, it's brilliant for the, especially international uh, people who've watched it. It's really it's it's really big in America this film as well. That if you want to see England in its finest, this is the this is the fucking weather you get. Well, right, and, and it's also tonal for the film as well, and, and the characters, because it's basically these guys are born under a bad sign. That you know, they're 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 like they can't escape this. They, it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to be surrounded by grey and misery. And yeah. there's definitely something in that for for the fact that um, they slog their way up, up the up the road, they eventually find this place, and then you know. They manage to get in and and they struggle through the night wrapped in blankets. So in other words, like and you you're seeing clearly, they might as well not have left because they've just effectively just, replicated what they had yeah. in, what they had in their in their exactly. flat. And then exactly. and then obviously, you know, Mar wakes up in the morning and you get all the cliches. You get the the birds singing, you get the blinking in the sunlight, you get the kind of there's a great shot. It focuses in on him coming out the front door. And camera pans around. Also, also the music at that time point as well. It's really beautiful. The, yeah. the actual soundtrack to it. Acoustic guitar, little thing in it. Yeah. Um, I think when I looked, there's there's a handful of tracks on the soundtrack that are attributed to two guys um, who I think composed some original music for the film, and one of them was one of the housemates of Bruce Robinson back in the day. They'd know oh, each other right. all that time. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, 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 and this shows you what kind of a country we live in now. I immediately thought, fucking hell, I bet that's worth a bit now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, you can't help thinking about property and bloody, you know, it's a doer-upper. Um, but it's also, it's also cleverly relaxes you. At that point in the film, it's probably the first time where you actually go, you know what I mean? You can feel like uh, yeah, the, the weight yeah. of his soldiers, and he's, he's got a full-on beam onto it. He's quite happy yeah, walking yeah, around. Yeah, and then exactly, and then obviously, like two minutes later, <laughs> it starts raining, and and you suddenly you suddenly like go, ah oh, shit, um, 
Oh, back to the doom and gloom. Because he gets binned off by the woman, doesn't he? He goes to yeah. the farmhouse. <laughs> and she says, back off! You know, whatever. And, um, it's sort of like Monty Python, isn't it? It's like, it's not coming out! <laughs> it's yeah, really old exactly. woman. <laughs> you know, I don't care if he is the son of God, he's a very naughty boy. And the mood changes completely, and all of a sudden it starts pissing down with rain again. And by the time he's back at the house, he's he's miserable. And that early morning, that sunshine, that brightness was a mirage, basically, or, or it was a transient thing, and it's gone again. And quite symbolic the way they do it. But well, the one thing which which you know, I mean, whenever you can get stuck in England, there's always a pub, and that's what they think their lifeline. Let's go to the pub. More or less, exactly what they would have done in London anyway. So. Well, exactly, the, same again. Yeah, and, and the, the man behind the bar, the general, you know, whatever. It's awful, but I, I still smile as much at his line as any other. When um, oh, I could tell you were a services man. <laughs> it, it, what? What? What are you on about, you old fool? Like, <laughs> like, you, you know, obviously Wivnell, with his effortless ability to adapt to the situation, starts playing up to it, and then um, the old, the old boy in the pub gets a great line slightly surreal but um he says he was in the war and with now says he was in the territorials in ireland and um like <laughs> just goes ah having a crack at the mick and it's like just sums him up sums up that generation sums up that character sums up that kind of attitude yeah yeah and um just sets it in its time and um i i find it intensely funny that bit i i because it's just so, the, the old boy's so hopeless. And and then obviously the poacher comes in. And he's just, br- it's a brilliant it, character. It's, right. it, it's, it's brilliant, yeah. Played by Michael Elphick, who... Um, Boone, remember Boone? Yeah, Boone. yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was, it was before Boone. Yeah. And he obviously went on to become an absolutely massive TV star. He was in, he, for about 10 or 15 years, he was... He was everywhere, sort of, wasn't he? yeah, yeah. He actually, I believe, knew Bruce Robinson from back in the day. Oh, they were right. part of a they were part of a of a of a, of a of a kind of set of actors from the late sixties who grew up together and knew each other in London and stuff. That's brilliant so, how he used a lot of his mates. Yeah, that's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so um, uh, but the, the the just the whole episode seminal that you know he, he marches in, he pours himself a pint while the old boy behind the bar just kind of fusses around and looks a bit taken aback and then almost falls over. And then, <laughs> obviously, then you get the bit which everybody remembers where he just looks a bit confused and puzzled, reaches into his trousers, pulls out an eel, and just batters it on the bar <laughs> and then shoves it back down his trousers. <laughs> puts and, it back in. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a nonsense. And um, then fe- <laughs> he ends up brandishing it at Wivnell. Yeah. You know. Um, he threatens him because he asks for pheasant. <laughs> exactly, and threatens, threatens to come back and, and bring a live one next time. Um, <laughs> you lose sight of the fact that that is the most pathetic threat anybody's ever had in their entire life. What? You're going to wave an eel at me? Oh, God. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm devastated. But we've yeah, now... No, take it all back. With Nell's not that scared at that point, is it? Well, before when he had the he had the bit with the the guy in the the altercation with the guy in the pub, um, well, yeah, he, he shit it like he legged it out. But this, yeah. this he was like, uh, whatever. It was only it was only in the it's morning it, when he starts dawning on him. It's in his nature to be to to front up first and think later as well, though, isn't it? You realise that you know he's he's he always rises to the to the challenge first and then. Afterwards, he, he he stops and thinks, Christ, what could have happened? Because, you know, um, yeah, as you say, so they go back to the house and they spend they spend the night getting getting worried about this poacher, and then obviously, you know, the sound of somebody apparently breaking in, and then the next thing you know, Uncle Monty's here. Well, <laughs> in, interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to be a bit serious here, mate. Um, I was talking to a colleague of mine. I, I would. I was just saying, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to be talking about Wibnell and I. And the guy says to me, um, yeah, very homophobic, that film. And I was like, what? Fuck, what are you on about? Like, this is one of my favourite films. What the fuck? And then, um, but he said, no, the Uncle Monty character is terrible. Very homophobic. And I was like, what? So, I, so when I was watching the film again, I was like, yeah, do you know what? The scene at his house... I'm happy with. Yeah. I don't think really get. He's a he, he effectively like a fruitcake, but 
I think actually when you look at the way they they run it, and and it's a much it's quite a long chunk of the film. It's twenty or thirty minutes of the film. Yeah. And you know, unfortunately, I, I don't think that character has aged that well in the in well, the scheme of things. I think it's funny, funny you should say that because um, uh, Bruce Robinson did a BFI interview with uh, Rich, uh, Richard E. Grant as well only about three or four years ago and he said, he says um, uh, this was written you know, a long time ago in the, in the 70s but he said these things within the film which you wouldn't put in now if he was going to redo it and, and there's two pieces, this one about Monty and his references to the black man as well within the film yeah. Um, yeah. I think it is I suppose it's like a lot of films out there, isn't it? Some things do work, some things are of of a time when people, it's horrible to say, would say those things. But you think he would have or should have known a bit better in the eighties when filming it. You know what I mean? You've also got. I've also watched an, uh, uh, a review of someone saying, "Okay, they understand that it was supposed to be references at that time." But that's really no excuse for him the way he still says certain things or does certain things when it was filmed in the eighties. But then again, he did have quite—he did have. I think he did have a lot on his chest, a lot of anger himself for what he had been through and wanted to portray it on screen. I think that's, yeah, that's one yeah, of the things yeah. reasons. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm—I don't want anybody to think that my personally that I believe that you should just be able to, you know, portray a character in a film like this and everybody should just go, well, that was his choice as director. Yeah, it was yeah. back in the day. Things were different then. I think, um, I, 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 I'm just going to say, it, it made me feel, it made me feel a bit awkward. Um, I was, I was, I was a bit annoyed that it had kind of burst the bubble a bit on the film. Yeah. yeah this conversation earlier in the week. And then, but then I, afterwards, I thought, well, no, because we, I said to the guy, well, yeah, but the character, the character, you know, um, how else do you do that character? He's 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 a theatrical kind of theatre world, you know, character that that's essential to the plot of the film, and yeah, yeah you haven't got to do it like that. I think the thing that the thing that I'd forgotten about until I rewatched the film was the fact that the plot device is that Withnail is basically fucked over Marwood by telling Uncle Monty that Marwood's basically up for it. Yeah, right? yeah. Which, as we know, is a complete lie. And also, it what? turns out, it's the, is the only reason why he let them have the cottage, right? Because it, it plans to come up anyway. <laughs> Definitely. And, 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 yeah, and it, it's basically like, it's like, it's Withnail being a piece of shit, basically. Yeah, just to get and, what he was quite selfish. In his yeah, way. yeah. And, and you, in, the, in, the way, in the way the film plays out, you're supposed to just kind of go, oh, with Nail, he's a card, isn't he? And he's pulled another one. And you're supposed to just look at Uncle Monty and go, he's so outlandish that it's hilarious. And I mean, even the, even the, even the language, you know, the, the, the line, the line about if it has to be burglary, yeah. there's something, there's something so sort of like um, comedic about the language that you, you know, you're supposed to somehow overlook the fact that he's, He's a he's a he's a horrible stereotype of a character. And yeah. Like, I I I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned this while. No, I I think I think it's I think it's I think it's genuine to mention. I actually written a lot down that you know um, because there is a lot of people who say about this film being homophobic, but I also have to think because I really think that Bruce was trying to come trying to do something, maybe in in the wrong way, but. I think his anger and the things of what he went through as a, as a young lad, as a young actor, I think he wanted to more or less show it. And he, he's he's, yeah. he's come out he's come out and said it a number of times, hasn't he? And I think this was his little way of a bit of closure to him. And yeah, yeah you, it you, probably you, did you it the wrong like way, that. but I suppose he, he could have easily shown it how it was. It it was of its time and. I just don't think that bit has, has really aged very well, and yeah. I think when you look at it now, you just feel like it's it's a little bit unpleasant. And but what 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 I did also find though, again, and I haven't, is looking at looking at it through my eyes now as 
you know, I'm the age I am, and we're in the society we're in now. There's there's actually a kind of asexual quality to Wiv now, in the sense that he sort of says at the beginning, in respect of the drugs and stuff, I'll do anything. Yeah. And there's a definite sense through the second half of the film that he'll do anything. And I don't really think that... It, it's, it's almost like it goes beyond are you gay or not or are you prejudiced or not and it's just literally a kind of I'm a complete hedonist I'm going to do whatever anything. he wants if it feels yeah, like it he'll do it yeah. in terms of an experience well, that it's all, is yeah I think you also see I think at this at this point in the film for me is the time when you start when you realise of what with Neil has done is to show how how selfish he is to get yeah. to get what he wants, to do what he wants, and, and then you seem to pick up that more and more, like like um, it's Paul, his weakness. Isn't yeah, it? Paul McGann's is is just a very self destructive person, of which around him he needs some stability, and Paul McGann plays that stability, that person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. like if if I'm out getting pissed with 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 you, Simon, and a couple of others, now there's always someone in there. Who might take a bit too far and falls over, and then you end up thinking, "Oh God, I'm going to have to look after this guy," or say, "No, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute." He he sort of adds Paul there yeah, for that stability, yeah. not necessarily a friend, but I think he is friend. But I think it, it's not until the end he realizes that you know what I mean. You, you yeah. feel a very clear, close connection, yeah, but it isn't until the end until that point happens. It, even the um, because obviously. Through the through the passage of the film where they're at the cottage and Monty is around, there's a couple of there's a couple of um, really funny bits. There's they go off into Penrith. It's supposed to be um, so that it, you know they can have a pair of you know stout rubber boots. And Withnail takes the money off Uncle Monty and just immediately goes right. I think a drink's in order. Yeah. And and. And yeah, like you say, Paul McGann's character goes, yeah, but we've got to buy these boots. And um, yeah, we've nailed immediately, self-indulgently, we'll make an excuse. We'll they go to the pub. Um, then obviously you have the legendary scene in the um, in the coffee shop, in the tea shop, oh. with, with 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 the killer line. You know, the line. That's the line that probably has been quoted the most from um, from the film. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. You know, it's high comedy, and I watched that scene again today, and and just laughed because there's a there's a childish joy to the way that Paul McGann's stuffing his face with a cake and sort of chuckling. I actually think um, I actually think they almost corpse in that scene, yeah. Um, because Richard E. Grant starts laughing um, midway through one of his lines, and I seriously think they might have just almost gone and then. The directors let it roll and then gone. Yeah, do you know what? We'll leave that in yeah. because he's he's so he's so amused by his own sort of nonsense in the moment that you can almost believe that he's, he's getting carried away. He's laughing rhetorically like that in the middle of what he's saying to this, you know, collection of of dweebs in front of him. But um, there's a definite there's a definite sense to me of that being spontaneous, you know, and I wonder if they did another few takes where he played it flatter and then, you know, or they, or they, they might have had another go and then they've, they've gone, fuck it, we'll leave this one in because it's good. But there, there was word from uh, uh, Bruce Roberts, but um, if anyone actually laughed while filming, even if it was a funny point within the film, we'll get him to redo it. Because it, oh. it, he didn't want, yeah, he didn't want people to see it as a gag. He wanted people to see that it has their lives and it's funny because it's it's their it's you know what I mean they're not playing for the gags. It's not a Monty Python film. You want it just that moment. So he had to keep retaking bit retaking a lot of scenes because obviously the cast and crew behind was just laughing the balls off a lot of times. Well that probably uh completely contradicts what I just said about I bet that was an improv improvised reaction bit and they left it in then. Um But it also but it, it also makes you think though that the amount of takes they had to do because it is genuinely funny scripted quoted film. 
Yeah, I, I definitely read something about him being known for wanting people to stick to the script. He doesn't like, he didn't, he apparently didn't like people going off piece that much. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he would have had, he would have had quite impressionable actors. I mean, they, they, that was a, that was a big deal for both of them. I don't suppose they'd have been rocking in and, uh, expecting to argue the toss about how to play the part with the director. I think, um, I think that's one of the best things for him that he could control them. Now, if he did get, I don't know, like they said, Kenneth Branagh, who back in '87, he, he was, uh, he was, he was quite a lot on TV, wasn't he? At that point, I think did he do uh, his Hamlet by then? Can't remember. But um, shall never play the Dane. Yeah. <laughs> I run it. Um, but yeah, if you're gonna get an actor in who's you know tried and tested, he might have argued to toss a lot more. With these, he would have just done exactly what he said. The, the guys in with now, you, you 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 imagine probably weren't weren't going to sit and quibble with Bruce Robinson, whereas um, yeah, maybe a, like you say, Branner or someone like that would have done. We're, we're we're on the back nine by the time we're we're at that scene, and um, like you said, I, I think you, you put it very well there. What you said before, you know, you starting to see how selfish Wivnell is. You, you see, you're seeing him as weak. Yeah, you start to realise that he'd almost like Marwood not to not to progress, not to get the job, not to, you know, you know, he he's idiotically happy to still be sat there exploiting Uncle Monty's wine and food when Monty's gone home in disgrace and you sort of see him for what he is to some extent at that stage, don't you? Um, there's some comedy moments as they're heading back in and, and they get stopped by the police and stuff. Um, although we don't encourage drink driving. Um, but did you, did you know as well, the driving to the um, Penrith and driving from Penrith, uh, homemade films refused to, um, refused to put up the money for it. It says we don't we don't think that it's a necessity for for the film, and Bruce was so adamant that he wanted it in. He actually got paid like seventy or eighty thousand pounds to direct the film. He paid thirty thousand out of his own payment for the film to put that bit in himself. So we had to pay for have uh, like vintage cars on the road at that point and film that himself because he wanted it in the film. I don't, yeah, and you you, you just think. Those scenes are really integral, and and it would it wouldn't be as strong without you know with without those scenes because they it's showing the journey and it's showing how you know it, how, again it shows them for the characters as well that it doesn't matter what with Neil is going through like even driving the car the fucker will still just get pissed <laughs> yeah and uh, Paul Paul McGann who who, who again uh, he's the one who's trying to save the day. You know the ultimate hedonist, as we said, but yet has somehow got it, got got it about him to jump behind the wheel and drive the car and get it done. And it's like it's just a different facet of the character, isn't it? It's a sort of like, ah, oh, well, okay, the chips are down, but he's got something. He's got there's something there. Yeah, he's got some, as you say, gumption. You know what I mean? He's got, yeah. he, he can he can bloody do it when he does it. So they arrive home, and first things first, like Danny is living in their flat. And there's a, a gross bit of racism, like in the yeah race, the wrong word. There's a there's a horrendous bit of an, an anachronistic kind of bit of dialogue, where yeah, Marwood goes, "Who's that big spade in the kitchen?" And um, it's just horrible. And I'm going to say this, and it's genuinely true. I didn't like that line at the beginning when I first saw the film. I thought that was thought that was shit. I don't think it works for that character because I wouldn't foresee no. that character being racist, especially if a person who no, exactly. um, entwines exactly. himself into being an actor so therefore sees homosexuals all the time. He probably sees... I'm not, I'm not referring that um, actors are all homosexuals, but would have seen more people being homosexual, would have seen more people of of different races as well coming in. Yeah. And at that time in the late, in the 60s and the early 70s, you've got um, different generations coming in from different parts of the world as well. You think he would have been more more future-looking, more broad-minded, broad-minded as, well, as well. Yeah, if there was going to yeah. use a racist term within the film, then you could have easily pinpointed that on a different one of the other characters what they met. Try the nutter in the in the bar to show how brutally, you know, stupendous he is that he thinks these guys are homosexual just because he smells perfume on them. 
You know what I mean? The next trait, him coming out of a racist term, I wouldn't put that past him at all because he's he seems like a twat. He seems yeah, like an exactly. evil fucker. Exactly. But with these, yeah. it's wrongly used for that character and wrongly used for the film itself. Yeah, it's just it's just it's just a bum note, and, it, yeah. and like and like I said, it has always annoyed me and jarred with me that, and yeah. I'm not just saying that to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm. No, I I I I no no I totally totally get it with you. Yeah, but um, I think the scene though, once you get past the 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 the, the, the nasty bit, obviously it's one of the classic scenes because it's the Camberwell carrot and it's Danny for his second mega mega moment in the film. It's, it's and, uh, literally only on on screen for what fifteen minutes in total, including his first part of the beginning. But it, yeah. it, he just gate crashes each scene he's in to be the one you remember yeah. more than anyone on it. The temptation to speak the lines quicker and rush it must have been there as well. I mean, I I, I can imagine him constantly getting told to slow down to start with because yeah. when the when you actually see what they what they finish with. It's so slow, and it's just like <laughs> the shit he's coming out with is complete cobblers. But like, it's so, but it's it's, it's so he believes so much in himself. You know what I mean? He's an extremely confident person, isn't he? And I've met I've met these people before uh, where they're uh, yeah, they're yeah. so confident that of their bullshit that they seem to even even if the people around there don't believe them, they're transfixed to see what he does next. It's one of those like you want to watch. Yeah, and, and like there's a line that where he, he's like, um, "You've you've given something to your brain, and you've made it hot. But if you give it something else and make it cold, I, I can't remember. Yeah, you know, but and it's all so clear, and and everybody just listens, don't they? They're just like little kids. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he didn't want to argue with him. Not if he's got an embalmer in his pocket, anyway. I know. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not about killing the rats for the onions as well, idiot. Oh, weird, I love that bit when he goes, "You've got, you've got, you've got rodents." He goes, "We rodents. haven't got rodents." He goes, "You've got rodents the size of a dog." He goes, "No, that might be next door neighbour's dog." He goes, "No, what's he doing in the oven then?" He goes, "What? Does the dog go in the oven?" No. Then it was a rodent. <laughs> Yeah. It's just fucking deadpan, but like I said, they must have been pissing themselves doing this. But Bruce would have had them do uh, it again. Do it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the root of the film as well. Like the heart of the film is it's it's a it's a knockabout comedy really. It, it's it's some ridiculous comic comic book characters with some killer lines. And it's just a load of bollocks really, but like they're just so funny. The, 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 those characters and those lines and just that whole vibe around it. It's yeah. It, as much as there's some bits that that are you know that aren't great, haven't aged well at all. Yeah. Um, it's it's, it's it, it is superb. It is, it, is, it, it, it is a superb film. And then uh, you come to the climax of the film, which is um, it's a it's a little bit touching, isn't it? And he says he's trying desperately to keep yeah. his mate there, isn't he? He's like, "Come on, just stay for one drink." And he's like, "No, I've got to go." Yeah. And he's like, "I'll yeah. walk with you then." He's had his hair, he's had his haircut symbolically, hasn't he? Yeah. So it's a kind of it's a you know it's a real clash now because it's I'm moving on. I'm I, you know I've clean got this job. I've, he's I've, seen all his clothes, yeah. clean and everything. One, one little uh, one little line that I noticed on this rewatch that I hadn't really picked up on before which, to reinforce the point about they are basically they are basically from good homes and whatnot. There's a bit where he just says, "My dad will be here to collect the box." Oh my god! The- I was going to say the same thing, Simon. I was going to say yeah. I've written it down to show that they come from a good upbringing because you know I, mean? I was exactly. wondering why he wouldn't have took the boxes himself and he's like that'll be bad. It's sort of that symbol of he's got a job, he's cut his hair, which isn't which is like the thing what your parents would say, wouldn't you? Get a job, cut your hair. You know what I mean? He's done that, yeah. so his dad's proud enough to help him move. Yeah, exactly. He, he can hold his head up, whereas you know, with now, meanwhile, he's still. Still in that rut of yeah, it's, a, it's a languishing you know, in his own uh, yeah. company, but but then obviously I didn't really remember this from my previous watchings of the film, but the watching it this time I was highly struck by it. The, the actual moment when they're looking at each other as they're saying goodbye, and he took the opportunity to walk with his friend and wanting to walk further. He knows he's not going to persuade him to go, but that yeah, point where it's yeah, a, it's like a moment of 
yeah. I mean, sorry, it's, it's like a moment of maturity, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. like it's like a sudden, it's like a sudden bit of progress. Um, I think, I think for both of them as well, like uh, Marwood realizes, and is that he touches his shoulder, doesn't he? And he, he's um, with Neil. I both both of them fill up to know that this is probably the last time they're going to see each other again. Yeah, and and I wouldn't be surprised as well if if it's not if it's not a, a kind of attempt by Robinson to sort of circle around on the gayness bit and and kind of almost say to the audience, well, look, these two aren't really, they were making, they, they were, they were being silly before, but actually there's a purity to their relationship, yeah. which, which means that they're not, that, you know, they're not bigoted They're that, you know, that they can actually see the true meaning of, 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 of love in, you know, and, and friendship and those things. Yeah. And, and um, it's just, I mean, we're reading a lot into a, a ten-second sort of two, two close-ups, but but you can tell that there's a lot of meaning in it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have put those shots in. Yeah, and not only that, is for this to be um, Richard E. Grant's first film, and for Paul McGann to both convey that look and emotion within those f- yeah. few seconds, Bruce Robinson, as a director, would have really had to, you know, force. Or tell them what it is they'll be thinking. Yeah. Be. This isn't just all right, lads. Just say goodbye. That's it. Done. This is like you're gonna say goodbye to someone you love, yeah, and you realise at that point. Yeah, and then obviously, um, you get, and then you get Richard E. Grant drops straight into a reciting a passage, which is from Hamlet, apparently, and um, maybe he is capable of acting after all. Yeah. B, he's got that inherent kind of residual knowledge and love of the play and the theatre and, you know, acting. Yeah. And and then also he's got some emotional energy to bring to it because of the moment. So in some respects, I think because we've, you know, we've called out, you know, one element of the film that hasn't done that, you know, hasn't hasn't survived that well. You know, it might we might, we might be might be in danger of kind of undermining the overall verdict on the film, which is it's, it's a fucking brilliant film. It, it, it's... It's a beautifully self-contained piece as well. Yeah. It's like if somebody rocked up and said, "Right, sequel," everybody would just go "fuck off." Well, uh, Bruce was asked. Bruce was asked that question in the BFI talk, and he says, "Was you asked to do a sequel?" He says, but "People have mentioned it, but he'd never want to do it because he doesn't need one." No, quite. And don't forget that, mate. Um, if if it had been American, they would have done a TV spin-off of it. Yeah. Are you going to tell me? No, those people. Those people will make a sitcom out of anything. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we can thank our stars at least that it it was made in Britain and nobody's come back to it and gone. Yeah, I think we should do a spin-off. And I think we come to the end of it now, the podcast. It was really interesting. I think we covered every aspect of it. And we gave our honest opinion to yeah. some parts which don't really work well and some parts which work phenomenally well. It's one, probably one of the most quoted films. I know students all over the country are probably still watching it. I, I love this film. You can sit back and just enjoy it anytime you watch it. There's new parts of the film which you will rediscover. If you haven't seen it for a while, just get on it and give it a watch. Now, Simon, it's been very good to come in on, and we always give them a choice of whatever song they want to finish off the pod. What would you like, Simon? Because of the mood um, of the film and the era, I thought, do you know, and the look of the guys and everything, it, 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 I thought of a, a band that I'm, I'm quite fond of called Traffic, um, and there's a track called Feeling Alright that I think fits the, fits the vibe of this film pretty well. Ah, brilliant. Um, and maybe maybe that's how the guys at the end of the film are feeling as yeah. well. So, um, yeah, so I'd say let's play us out with that. So I'm going to say uh, goodbye now. Goodbye, Simon. Thank you for coming. Come on again. Yeah, bye. Seems I've got to have a change of scene Because every night I have the strangest dream Prison by the way it could be Left here on my own, or so it seems. I'm 
got to leave before I start to scream Someone's locked the door and took the key You feeling alright? I'm not feeling too good myself Well, you feeling alright? I'm not feeling too good myself took me for one big ride And even now I sit and wonder why And when I think of you I start to cry Just can't waste my time I must keep dry Gotta stop believing in all your lies Cause there's too much to do before I die You're feeling alright I'm not feeling too good myself 